Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Roel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our, met- our mission is to help you, our listeners from Los Angeles to Long Island, make your second half of life even better than the first. Today's episode is the final chapter of a three-part conversation that I began earlier this summer, focusing on a terrific book, What Went Right? Lessons from Both Sides of the Teacher's Desk, by co-authors Roberta Israeloff and George McDermott. Roberta was one of my classmates at Syosset High School on Long Island in the late 1960s and has remained a longtime friend. George was our 11th grade American Lit teacher at Syosset. Roberta, a career writer and author, is currently the director of the nonprofit Squire Family Foundation, dedicated to encouraging the teaching of philosophy at pre-college levels. And George, a writer and poet, has had several teaching jobs, as well as extensive editorial experience in several business and media fields over several decades. In my last conversation with Roberta and George in July, we elaborated on some of their recollections and perspectives during their earlier teaching experiences, which were detailed in their book. We went on to focus on what's changed or not in public education, society, and in their own lives, inside and outside the classroom. In today's episode, we'll continue our discussion of significant shifts and trends in public education that George and Roberta have observed, some of which have spurred considerable debate, such as the application of more corporate approaches to education and questions about how much education should be linked to the training of students, more specifically for future jobs. We'll take a longer look at the true meaning of lifelong learning. And finally, I'll ask Roberta and George to offer some parting takeaways from their collaborative exploration of education over life, what they discovered about themselves in the process, and how we can all continue this conversation and ultimately teach us how to be more human. So now I'm delighted to welcome again both Roberta Israeloff and George McDermott. Roberta and George, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ron. Great to see you guys again. So, so as I mentioned in the intro, what I'd like to do is, is just sort of widen the lens a little bit today, uh, talking about how education has changed or not over the years, and uh, and talk about you know specifically what you and you, you both of us you you have had uh, in, in our previous conversations offline just about you know the the focus today it seems so there's a hardening focus on data and analysis and performance evaluation that sort of is oriented toward a, a business approach. Um, and it certainly has had some impact on education uh, and certainly in public education, because, you know, and kind of analogous to my own profession of, you know, media where everybody sees the media and thinks they know about it. Everybody thinks they know about public education. So I just wanted to give you guys a, some, some uh, ask you uh, what your thoughts are these days about, you know, this, you know, corporatization trend and, and, what the impact has been. So let me start with you, George, a little bit, and then Roberta, you dive in. When... The, the corporate influence on public education is probably the most pernicious uh, influence around these days. I mm. think, I think, uh, I think I, I currently live at not on Long Island any longer. Right now live in Florida and mm-hmm. Florida is, is, the center of the privatization, corporatization mm-hmm. of of public education for it may be maybe the for the entire country, it's certainly one of the one of the most. And uh, there are finally I'm seeing some resistance on the part of of uh, ordinary citizens, parents and 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 uh, others to uh, to the constant encroachment on the public sector of the private sector mm-hmm. and it, it's a but we still have an awful lot of charter schools we still have vouchers that can be used at private schools we still have private schools that are that are sucking out big chunks of uh, what the funding that should be going to the public schools and uh, and that's scary Roberta, your thoughts? Yeah, it's, it's a kind of um, continuation of what seems to be happen, happening more generally, which is that we 
form silos. You know, public education was the way that you met people who weren't, who your family didn't know, who weren't in your immediate circle. It was kind of an engine of, of democracy in that way. Uh, you know, even in Syosset, which was a, a pretty homogeneous community, um, we were still, um, we still met people, children, fellow students from different walks of life, teachers from different backgrounds. Uh, when I walk into a public school, a private school now for my work, it's it's um, very disorienting because it's just a slice of the elite. Um, you know, they all say they have scholarship students there, and and but it still seems like it's promoting this idea that we're we're separate and there are class and racial distinctions, and and that doesn't seem to be what education should be doing for us. Yeah, just to add on to that, I mean, and going back to what you were saying, George. Uh, in addition to drawing away resources, it seems to me that there's an issue about, you know, the way you, you measure performance in business, which is not necessarily analogous to education. And the things you're trying to teach aren't necessarily measurable in the same ways. I don't think, I don't think education can be measured in the short term. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think education is by definition a long-term process. And uh, if you want to discover whether whether uh, student X is is successfully educated, you're going to have to wait until student X has died, probably. Mm -hmm. Say, okay, how did they do? You know, in their life. You know, um, the problem the problem is it's like it's like it's almost like a like a CPA. Um, uh, approach to education. They're, they're, they're talking about accountability. They're talking about performance. They're talking about, uh, about, you know, measurable data points. They're talking about objective measure uh, certifications. They're talking about, and those things, those things are, are, have very little, if any, relevance to, to education. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, uh, um, and in fact, very little, very little relevance to the students' real lives, because when you when you try to get objective data points, what you wind up with is standardized testing. You wind up with, uh, you know, uh, measurable, you know, uh, quantitative stuff, and the uh, and what you're going to wind up needing as a student, as a graduate, is much more qualitative. Yeah, I think the whole point, excuse me, the whole point of our book is that what, you know, what survived for us is not the quantitative part, but the, but the quality of the education we had, the, the, which is not measurable. It's not quantifiable in the, in the way that we understand, um, you know, metrics. Um, because you never know when something that you talked about or an exchange you had in 10th grade or even second grade uh, will come back to you uh, or contributed to the person that you've become. Uh, I think every teacher has received letters or, or if anyone still writes letters, emails, whatever, late in, late in years after they were in a classroom together. That's certainly what happened to us to say, uh, you know, you really, your class really had an, an impact on me. It took, you know, a number of decades for us to get back together to say that. So how do you, how do you measure that? You know, how does that, uh, how can you put that in a package? I, I think it's part of the, you know, I, uh, I think it's part of the impulse toward let's be quick and easy. And uh, I was at a work conference this past weekend and a wonderful social teacher, social studies teacher who's a colleague of mine said at the beginning of her presentation, my goal for my students, my task is to make things more complicated for them. And I thought that was absolutely what a teacher's job is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, to me, a, a lot of what seems to be driving things, at least in my mind, is uh, the this sense of fear, you know, and, and so I, I kind of try to figure out what, 
what are people so afraid of it? And, it, and in an odd way, it seems to be almost an extension of what in our generation, Roberta is known as helicopter parenting, you know, where, where parents have been just afraid to let go of their kids, to let them explore, to let them make mistakes, to let them, you know, establish their own opinions. And it seems like this is, you know, uh, basically, you know, uh, seeped into the, you know, the, the nature of education where they're, you know, whether it's parents or politicians are trying to control everything. And you can't do that. That's not really what the purpose is of education. You know, I think you guys said several points, you know, it's to uh, leave, you know, students with questions, not answers. Well, the thing, the thing that, that you mentioned about, about helicopter parenting and protecting and, and, you know, the old Paul Simon song, the boy in the bubble and, and that sort of thing. Um, the problem with that, of course, in the long run, is that the people who are protected don't learn how to deal with anything that's beyond that experience. You know, you're in the bubble, but you don't know how to deal with the stuff that's outside the bubble. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, uh, um, there is uh, biomedical research going on right now that's showing that uh, uh, students, not students, children, who are who are protected from from uh, outside environment uh, wind up having uh, uh, less robust uh, immunological systems. Mm-hmm. There, uh, and people who are people like who have been protected during their entire lives from the infections are the ones. There is a theory, at least, that they're the ones who are having the most trouble with the COVID pandemic right right and that's analogous to what goes on with with education you know if i were if i were a a parent who wanted to make sure that my my children stayed with the beliefs that i was trying to instill in them at home for the rest of their lives i would want to make sure they were exposed to other people's competing beliefs because I'd want them to be able to defend their, their own systems against those other systems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to keep people isolated right. from each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree, George. I think that it, it, and now more than ever, you know, when we have a society that is increasingly diverse, a world that's increasingly diverse and complicated, and, you know, and, requires people to really cross over lots of different borders to understand the world. And we're basically, you know, I think isolation is, is a real killer. I don't mean that always literally, but intellectually, you know, and, and, and culturally, you know, I think that that's, um, that really, that exacerbates divisiveness. And so, you know, teaching our students, you know, how to deal with these issues, I think is really important. But we're, we're talking about the the uh, new phenomenon of trigger warnings, which never existed. I, I don't remember them existing. You know, there were no warnings that said we're going to be talking about difficult material. Um, it seems, but dealing with this, face with this situation now, I think it just highlights how much things have changed and how out of it we are. Because I listen to young people talk about why they want them and why they're necessary to them. Uh, to us, it seems to speak to a fragility um, and uh, to me of a fearfulness. Um, but I've heard people speak very passionately about them and it just makes me feel farther and farther uh, away from what's uh, happening currently. Um, so I- I'm not sure how, how I come down on that issue, frankly. I'm trying to be open to other points of view. I don't. I don't know either. I, I have a friend who is a novelist, and he maintains. He says, "My whole reason for being, my whole reason, the whole reason for my for my novels, is to trigger people. I mean, that's 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 the point is to trigger them so that they can figure out how to deal with what's being triggered. And so I don't know. 
Yeah. Well, I I don't have the answer either, but I, I I do think we need to take that risk. I think that, you know, that you know, growth in life, whether it's literal or intellectual or cultural, requires some risk. You know, you have to let go of the control, and I think that's, to me, this fearfulness about loss of control. It's like, you know, it, it's it's okay if you, you know, your kids if 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 you care about your kids and love them and you trust in them and you trust their capacity. And, and I, I guess part of it, you, you need to trust the system too. I guess the part of it is the lack of trust in, in organizations and institutions in general, which is a problem, you know, and certainly there, there are problems, but I think, you know, you have to be willing to take some risks. And I think one of them is to let education be education. Um, uh, we're going to come up with a break soon, but I just wanted to, to start at least a, a discussion about. So along these lines, there there is this issue about control and and accountability. So that it's a little bit of the, uh, you know, about the, the corporate notion too. But and, and you guys know that that one of the issues has come up is just people coming out of the educational system and then there are no jobs for them, and so this concern about well, you know. Uh, I guess it came out of Florida, George, this notion of, you know, we need more engineers, not philosophers, you know, that, that you know, political notion. And I think that that's, uh, that's something which I, I have an issue with. I want to get your thoughts on that. Uh, but we're going to just, just hold on to that, though. And uh, we're going to come back to this right after the break. So, folks, don't go anywhere. We'll be coming right back with much more from Bert Israeloff and George McDermott on what went right and not so right in education. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back to 45 Forward, folks, where we're talking with George McDermott and Roberta Israeloff, the co-authors of What Went Right. Uh, before we continue, I wanted to let you know that you can learn more about Roberta and George and listen to my previous two shows with them uh, uh, the first one was on June 13th and the second on July 18th. Uh, you can go to my website and listen to them or go to the voiceamerica.com site and click on 45 forward there. So before the break, we were talking about, um, you know, the, the issue of uh, um, training versus education. And I know that, you know, part of this, I think, is just because I think a lot of students for various reasons are coming out of. Um, school and college in particular with huge student debt and and there's no sense of jobs. But I think that that conflates, you know, some of the issues sometimes about, well, what education should be doing. So I wanted to ask each of you, you know, about, you know, well, what is the role of, um, tra- of education, public education specifically for, you know, training people for their future in the workplace? Let me talk with you, Roberta, this time. Well, that's a tough one because I am more aware than ever that um, I come from a place of great advantage and Mm -hmm. my family from my grandparents on, my grandparents never went to high school. I think one of my grandmothers just got as far as sixth grade uh, and she had a beautiful handwriting. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, 
so, you know, to us and growing up in the 50s and 60s, there were very different uh, expectations. You know, my husband and I often talk about the fact that when we graduated, we felt as if, well, we have had such a great education. We can basically do pursue a career, any career. We can mm-hmm. try, you know, try on a couple. We can use our best talents. I think the climate is very different today. Um, and, um, and you know, you are at a disadvantage if your uh, basic skills are are not up to par. And many students are, you know, have that, that problem, math and simple reading and, and writing. Um, so, um, you know, I think that has to be a given um, for everybody. And then once, once that's established, um, then the goal is to, is to push you, uh, as we were talking about, into a place where you can uh, encounter new ideas and, and, uh, and kind of stretch your mind. That seems to me what the, the goal of education is, as I said before, to make things more complicated, to see that uh, you know, you, you have to get out of your own perspective sometimes and see things through other eyes. Right. I, I really think that's uh, the goal. And um, I think a lot of students are feeling that they're not prepared to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. George, I know that you've talked before about, you know, the need for flexibility, you know, between high school and college. And, um, and, and just to think about, you know, whether or not things should be like this lockstep, you know, funnel to college. So talk about that a bit. Growing convictions, in fact, is that, is that, uh, I don't think college is necessarily used for the right things by everyone. I don't Mm -hmm. think college is necessarily something that everyone, every student should pursue. Um, I think there are things you can learn in college that you can't learn anywhere else. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. And and if what you want to learn is what you learn in college, then I think you should go to college. But I don't think you should be going to college because it will help you get a better job. Um, I know electricians. I know machinists. I know plumbers. I know other people who do not have college degrees who are actually making a much better living than I ever did with mm-hmm. my, with my education. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, you know, it's not, it's not a job thing. It's a, I mean, it might help you discover what you want to do in your life, in which case maybe that's what you, that's the reason you should go to college. If, uh, or you might know what you want to do in life, and that might be require going to college. I mean, if you want to be a lawyer, you have to go to college. If you want to be a physician, you have to go to college. If you want to be an accountant, I guess you have to go to college. Um, but, but not if you want to do any number of other things. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, once you've gone to college, you don't have to do the things that uh, that college prepares you to do. Um, nice. I was just reading an interesting story about a, a, a woman, recent graduate, I, I think she, I think graduate, uh, graduate degrees, who became a barista. And it was mainly because she wanted to do the, the labor organizing for, mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. bar- baristas of America. Right. So, yeah. 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 There, there seems to be, you know, when I, what we, in our previous conversation, we talked about is there a basic canon that should come out of education in terms of what the basic canon of knowledge. And, you know, I think that there, there are differences about what that canon is. Um, uh, I do think that's true. But one of it is is a, a skills canon, which is I think that no matter what profession, I, I think there is a place for, you know, basic math, and even more so basic communication and writing skills. You know, I mean, I've talked to engineers who come out and certainly they, they, um, you know, they, they benefited from higher education and engineering. There are certain very technical skills they had, but one of the difficulties they had in, when they got their jobs was writing reports, 
they had poor communication skills and it, it just never occurred to them that how much of their job involved communicating their ideas to others. So I think that's a very important part of education that it's just, there are basic skills that I think we really should focus on. And as you said, George, let their interests be developed on their own. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I do have, you know, a little bit too of, of the sense of, from a trade perspective, you know, yeah, I agree with you that engine, you know, that there are, you know, plumbers and electricians and so forth that, you know, that, that do quite well learning trades. And, and I do sort of feel that there should be a little bit of that uh, more in, as part of basic education, you know, for me to come out, you know, and, you know, we, we focus on, you know, so much about giving people opportunities as, as homeowners, first time homeowners, right? And one of the problems is that, yeah, you can buy a home, but can you take care of it? You know, <laughs> I mean, there, there are certain basic things that people just don't know, including me. I mean, to me these days, it's even it's even complicated trying to change a light bulb because there's so many different light bulbs and so many different sockets and so many different, you know, circuits that, so there, you know, it seems to be that we, we, I have no problem with, with focusing on, on higher education, but I do think that we need to swing a little bit from where we were because when, certainly when Roberta and I were going to high school, certainly the measurement of the success of our class was, okay, how many of you went to college? And that may not be the right measurement, you know? So um, uh, anyway, um, and, and I think that, you know, there is, I think that I remember, um, you know, um, listening to you, Roberta, talk about your experience walking up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and going around City College and, and just seeing, you know, I, I did some work at City College myself, you know, my post-journalism career. And, you know, I do think that, you know, there is something about, as you mentioned, um, education, giving people an opportunity to be, to learn and to be with people who are not like you, you know, and I think that that's, um, that that's one of the great things about public education. Um, it is. And, you know, kind of piggybacking on George's experience of being a teacher in the 60s and then coming back uh, years later, I went for the first three semesters of college to a state university and then transferred mostly for personal reasons to one of the seven sisters. And uh, in all honesty, I had a much better experience at the State University. Um, uh, it, was, um, it was a much more diverse crowd and uh, the teachers were, were different as well. They were not as snobby. They were not as elitist. I, I had a very hard time uh, at the, um, the elite college uh, that I went to. And interestingly, I, I don't have, I really don't have any friends from that time of my life, whereas I still have friends that I met at, at the State University. So um, I, I don't think there's, um, there's a single, you know, a single <clears throat> category. You know, I've talked to electricians and plumbers who come to our house to fix things because we can't do anything either mm -hmm. uh, for ourselves, including changing light bulbs, um, who have, I felt I connected with on some level of understanding of the world, a kind of uh, more encompassing vision and understanding of people and openness to conversation. Um, so there's, kind of, there's a quality that, that I look for anyway. I, I don't know, maybe not everybody. I mean, not everybody does everything, but it's important to me, this kind of humanistic vision which is the most important thing that I got out of my schooling from basically first grade on. Um, and, and, and that's kind of what counts to me more than uh, where, where you apply it. As George said, there are people with degrees who, you know, who go into making coffee or, or doing other things and, and they find their own path. But um, it, I think it's part of the the um, if we instill in young kids and, and lifelong learners this idea that, you know, that as George said, that education is a long journey. It's, it's, not, it's not, you know, a period of years. It's an openness to, um, to learning throughout the yeah. course of your life. Yeah. yeah and George some people welcome that and some people don't. Right. But George, pick up on that because we were talking about a little bit about lifelong learning and, and you've said before, there is no end to education. And so what should be the role of, you know, as, as we, you know, we, we, you know, segue out of formal education, what, how should we, you know, keep this process going? 
it's 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 a matter of resisting the urge to be comfortable mm-hmm. with what you ha- what you are, who you are, where you are, what you're doing. Um, there are, as I said, I live in Florida now, and there are an awful, awful lot of retired people in mm-hmm. Florida, and an awful lot of the retired people in Florida fall into patterns that they never venture out of. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's very important to force yourself to venture out of the patterns, to venture out of what's familiar, to, to, uh, to expose yourself to, to situations in which you will deliberately make yourself feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the stimuli, one of the most effective stimuli for learning. Is, is figuring out how to deal with something that's different from your experience, how to figure out how to deal with something that makes you feel uncomfortable, how to become comfortable with the uncomfortable. Hmm. Right, right. I think there's a different paradigm today, though, because my younger colleagues speak very much. I, I agree with you, George, but my younger colleagues speak very sincerely about the, that the only way you can be open to learning is when you're comfortable. When you feel safe, you know, they stress the idea of feeling safe. That's what that's where trigger warnings come in. You know, they don't want to feel jostled. They don't want to feel threatened. They're very concerned with their personal safety. And they say that if someone comes on, you know, starts talking or presents material that's upsetting, they shut off. So, as I say, it's it's it seems like a paradigm shift that we're just aged out of um, and it's disorienting for me, but I hear that quite frequently. Yeah. Well, I, I, I hear what you're saying, Roberta, and I, I, I guess my feeling is that you're, you're both right <laughs> in, this, in this sense, that you need to be in a, in a safe environment that you trust in order to take risks. Okay. And, and so if, if you feel generally unsafe, you're right, it's, it's going to be difficult to take risks and, and be uncomfortable. But if, if there's a basic feeling of comfort and safety, that, that you're in a trusting environment, then in order to grow and then in order to re- really be vital as you get older, you must take that risk. And, and, and there is an, you know, a growing um, cadre of research you know, that, that you know, in terms of looking at longevity, human longevity and human health over that period. And one of the factors, and you know, a lot of people are looking at you know issues with, with dementia. You know, how do you, how do you reduce the, the risk of dementia as you get older? Which is a big, is a big worry of a lot of us. Is you know, as human life goes, you know, longer and longer, it's like, well, it's great as long as I don't have dementia or Alzheimer's. Um, and one of the things that that they discover, of course, is that there are issues of you know exercise, there are issues of of um, social engagement. And, and, and diet and nutrition. But then this other factor is cognitive development. And they have shown that, that, that to you know, challenge yourself you know, as you get older, in fact, not only keeps you vital and healthy, it stimulates brain growth. But what does it most is what you talked about, George. Yes, it's doing you know, puzzles and Sudoku and that you know, crosswords. But it's in the areas that are most significant and most beneficial is when you're really challenged. You're really out of your comfort zone. You've got to figure out something that's very different, you know. Um, and it could be simple, even the sense of you, you always use your right hand and all of a sudden, like, well, try using your left hand to solve that problem. And that really, you know, forces you to think differently about things. So we're going to take another quick break. Um, so, but don't go away, folks. We have one more vital section left with Roberta and George before we conclude. So don't go anywhere. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. 
From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're in our last segment with Roberta Israeloff and George McDermott, the co-authors of What Went Right. Um, and before the break, we were talking, we, we just uh, I wanted to continue a very interesting conversation about uh, about the issue of how do we move forward when we're uncomfortable? How do we get people to take risks and 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 yet um, you know uh, create an environment where they feel comfortable to do so? So during the break, George you know, was talking about the the issue of control, which I'd like him to bring into our our last segment before we move on to our final thoughts. Um, it just it occurs to me that what people who feel that they need to feel comfortable really feel is that what they feel is they need to feel in command of the situation. They need to be that, that the threats that they perceive, that the, that the discomforting thoughts that come in, the, the influences, the, the trigger messages, um, are really just things that, that threaten their command, their mastery of themselves. And uh, and if you feel in command of yourself, if you feel as if you've mastered yourself, then you're much better able to deal with the external influences in your way. And right. Yeah. So maybe it's a psychiatric problem. I don't know. Well, I, I I'm not sure. You were about to say something, Bert, and then I wanted to add something. Um, yeah, I was just going to say that I think that um, part of Feeling confident in yourself is feeling confident to give yourself over to, to someone else or a body of knowledge or a book. You know how when you settle in with a book that you really like, you, you kind of feel like, I'm giving myself over to this author. I'm going to hear what this person is saying. I'm going, And the same way when you're in a class with a teacher that you really um, enjoy listening to, you, it's an admission... I think I mentioned this before of this philosophical concept of intellectual humility, knowing that we don't know everything and we learn, we learn from all different sources and you're submitting to there's, I think we talked about in the book, this, this notion of, of, um, of giving yourself over to um, something that you don't know and you, you want to know and, um, it's not always easy for a lot of people who feel that they want to always be in control. So I think both all the things we're talking about involve a balancing of dichotomies. And mm-hmm. I guess everyone needs to find their own level of comfort, discomfort, in control, out of control. Um, maybe it's different phrases for the same idea. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, going full circle um, at the same time um, to something that 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 you mentioned Robert in the book and that uh, has to do with what the way you felt com- comfortable in George's class so in other words I, I do think th- so there is a role in the classroom there's the role of the teacher in creating or helping to create an environment where you do feel safe to do the things you do talk about and to explore. And, and I remember you talking very specifically about that you did, did feel that comfort that you could really explore. So I think you set the tone, George, for that. That, yeah. that So I think there is that, that that's something that teachers can do that, you know, as long as you point it, as long as they're allowed to do that, <laughs> you know, there is a lot of pressure on, well, just, just cover the curriculum. But I think that that's something teachers really can do is set that that environment of safety to, to explore and take risks. Well, the, the, the fundamental thing that teachers have to feel, I mean, I think it's a requirement 
uh, it's the, the basic requirement is teachers have to respect their students. And if the teachers respect their students and the teachers respect the differences among their students and between their students and respect the, the different rates of learning and respect the different where they're coming from and where they're headed. And, I mean, then, then it's just a matter of finding out where that kid is at this particular moment and helping them get to where they want to go and where they're capable of going. And, and, right. and, and it's a matter of respect. Right. Yeah, I think that, you know, that um, one of the things that I've noted in sort of my takeaways is when you guys, you know, there is there is a shift, I think, that's getting there. You know, so in, in medicine, we're talking about a patient centered approach. You know, what what does the patient really need um, as opposed to what does the system need? You know, what do the doctors need? And I think you're saying something similar about a student centered approach. You know, that's part of what we need to do with education, really shift our attention to what do our students really need, you know? Um, um, and well, there's a whole shift. Oh, there's a whole shift in thinking of the teacher as the facilitator more than the um, most knowledgeable person in the room. You know that the teacher facilitates. Uh, you know, there's all this. You work in small groups, and you, you know, that could be very illuminating for students. But you can also feel like you're going in circles, and you need more direction. So again, it's up to the to the balance, and um, and I think one of the things that you did, George, in your in your classroom was that I really got the sense that you enjoyed the argument. You know, you enjoyed right uh, engaging with us with differing points of view. You know, as sixteen year olds, we were very sure that we our interpretation of the Scarlet Letter was the correct one, and you you push back against that, and it was invigorating uh, to experience those. Uh, those exchanges. But from the from the opposite point of view, um, and what we were talking about earlier about how, how you do with lifelong learning and all that sort of thing, um, it was invigorating for me to have all your perspectives conflicting. You know, I mean, I had to, I had, if you thought Hester Prynne was X instead of Y, then I had to figure out some way either to accept your vision of her or to convince you that mine was the correct one you know and, and you know you don't you don't want to get calcified that that's probably what 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 we're we're saying is that right. that right. lifelong learning um and learning in general is a matter of resisting calcification mm-hmm and if you if you engage in it really it can you can establish a new feedback loop that's very um, very salutary you know you mentioned doing puzzles and and different things to stimulate your brain you know you I play words with friends because I love seeing word combinations and scrabble but at a certain it took me a while to master that but at a certain point I felt like well I've gotten to the level that I could do achieve it wasn't stimulating anymore. So I switched to a, a number puzzle. And when, when you do that, you almost feel the neurons emerging or making new connections. It's a physical sensation of excitement and nervousness and I can't do this. And, and then it, it really feels like a neurological event and it's very stimulating. I just don't know if a lot of people have uh, pay attention to that or how we even talk about it. You know, the calcification is, is really, is a real phenomenon where you just feel like, oh, I can keep doing this forever. But if you do your left hand and you forge those new pathways um, and we pay attention to the, the feedback, the internal feedback, it's, it's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we close, I want to make sure that I at least, uh, talk about something that interested me. So going along just what you just said, Robert, in terms of, you know, what you've learned, what did you guys learn about doing the book about yourselves and each other and, and the process? Because I'm sure, you know, doing it, it forced you to think about, like, put a lot of things in perspective and make connections and think about things that you hadn't thought about probably in a number of years. So so what did you learn for, in, in doing the book about, and were there any surprises about things that either one of you learned about? yourselves or about education, your thoughts about education? Well, I'll just jump in first. It was a very vital process. You know, once we figured out how to do it, that we were going to write letters to each other, 
Uh, and we, we always reacted to, we just fell into a pattern of reacting to what the pre person said in the previous letter and then carrying it forward, making connections. And it always felt um, unexpected. You know, I think we, we shared things that we hadn't, um, that we didn't know about each other in terms of our, even though we were in the classroom together, things that we, that we didn't realize about the other person. I found it a very invigorating process. It, it was never, I always looked forward to the letters to see what I could grab onto and comment on in, in advance. It was, it was a really thrilling um, process for me. As someone who had just conceived of myself as the writer who sat alone in my room and, and mm -hmm. thought to myself, um, it, was, it was really quite exciting. It was definitely uh, illuminating, exciting, uh, and it was it was interesting to discover that that people and we in particular could just write letters to each other. I mean, letter writing is is disappearing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just. I mean. Uh, it, now, granted, what we were writing were emails, not 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 handwritten postal service letters, but but they they were still we approached them the same way we would have approached a handwritten letter, and uh, and today, you know, I don't know, I don't I don't know that we could have accomplished this same thing, the same result, if we had been sending texts. <laughs> or 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 what are the snapchats or you know right. whatever the the um it's i think the sustained the sustained impulse one of the things i learned was that it was possible to sustain uh that kind of thing i mean most of my life i've been writing things that last no longer than 20 minutes mm -hmm. and uh you know so this this was this was a, a really marvelous experience. Yeah, I think it was also fascinating to experience that that shared um, that time we were together from each other's perspectives because we were on opposite sides of the desk and there were various expectations that came with that. So it was really interesting to hear you comment on um, very specific lessons or experience the time we went to Gatsby's house. I never thought that, for example, that the fact that Ron and I went to find the house would be as gratifying as it was to you. It was just something that Ron and I wanted to do. But to think that it had to hear you talk about how it made you feel when we came to see you that first day of 12th grade and said, you know, we did it. We, we took this, this trip. And uh, I think I even brought the shells I gathered on the trip to show you as if I had to prove it to you that we were really there. Um, it, it was it was it's that perspective taking it's again it's that getting out of yourself seeing things from the other side the experiencing the other person's perspective yeah that's very enlivening yeah it wasn't just significant to me i have told that story to other teachers yeah. over the years um high school teachers middle school teachers college teachers and they all react to it with a oh my god what what a wonderful experience you know, to have students who actually did that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was wonderful. Me too. And, and uh, I will, you know, full disclosure, I was surprised to see it in the book. I, did. <laughs> I didn't know I was in the book, um, but uh, I, I did, you know, just quickly, you know, some of my takeaways in, in reading this, one was just this sort of gratification at being able to, kind of re-explore, you know, personal history and yourself in a way that wasn't just nostalgia, like, oh yeah, remember a bird at the time we did that? Remember this, that? It was really a development of like, oh, enriching the past and rethinking and reinterpreting what happened to your life and adding sort of the, the you know, the, the, the texture, you know, enriches your life. And, and, and also I felt, you know, it was, uh, it was exciting for me, you know, to read the book. And because as you move forward into the book, um, you know, I could see that it was the, it was a sense of discovery too. You were moving forward with these letters um, and you were discovering things, you know, chapter by chapter that you hadn't expected. And you, and so 
it was an interesting journey in that sense. And that to me made it compelling reading, not just, you know, um, okay, this happened, this happened, this happened. But you well, were- that's part of the creative process, because at the beginning, we didn't even know that it was a book. I mean, it was a huge gamble to even say, let's do it. We had no idea. And even when we figured out that we wanted to do it through letters, I didn't have confidence until we were a long way into it that this would actually cohere and become and become a book. And that open endedness, I think, is a really great antidote to calcification. Right, um, right. That sense of I'm going somewhere, I trust in it, I have enough control, I have enough confidence to let go of control at the same time. And I don't know where it's going to end up, but I'm going, I'm there going. Go. And that end, where it's going to end up, not knowing where it's going to end up is specifically true, because I, I thought many times during it, I thought, I don't know how we're going to end this thing. Right. <laughs> and, and, and uh, Roberta is the one who finally came up with an ending. I, I read that letter and I said, okay, there's the ending. Right. And unfortunately, George, <laughs> we've come to the ending of our show and I, I regrettably have to end it, but I just wanted to thank you so much, both of you for this conversation. Um, it's a, it was a great trilogy this summer. I look, find, look forward to finding ways to continue the project. And I just wanted to, uh, before we close this, um, are there uh, ways that people can get in touch with you, either one of you, to if they have comments or questions? So, any best way to reach you? I actually have a website, uh, okay. which is george-mcdermott.com. So right. it's possible to get to me there. And Roberta? I'm at uh, squirefoundation.org. If you write an email to me, risraeloff at squirefoundation.org. Great. Okay, folks. Well, thanks again for listening today. And uh, I'll be back uh, next week um, at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. I'll be talking uh, with Ido Durley of MX Elder Care. And until then, folks, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.